If you got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the beginning of probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached. And of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, preached by Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter number 5, we'll start reading in verse number 1. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. First thing I want you to see about the Sermon on the Mount is, most of the time, the, the way we see it, or the way that it's portrayed, is not the way that it actually was. Jesus had been teaching with the multitudes. He had compassion of the multitudes, as he always did. But here he separated himself from the multitudes, and he went up into the mountain. And his disciples came with him. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount wasn't meant for the multitudes. It wasn't meant for the world, although there is value for the multitudes and there's value for the world. It is a, it is a discipleship a message teaching his disciples. This was a personal sermon. We, we have the benefits of being able to read it. But understand, this was for the disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the multitude couldn't hear it. Maybe they could. That doesn't mean that some of the multitude didn't also follow up. Maybe they did. But the Bible makes it very clear in verse number one that there's a separation here. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Not everybody. This was a personal message. And why is that important? It's important to understand when we're reading the Bible. One of the, one of the keys to understanding the Bible is understanding who is the audience. Who is being spoken to? Where the entire Bible has value for us, sometimes it's not a direct application. Sometimes if we, if we attribute the wrong audience, then we get the wrong meaning out of what Jesus Christ is saying or what God is trying to tell us. So it's important if we want to have clarity, if we want to truly understand what's being taught, we need to understand who the audience is. And sometimes that audience isn't even us. Sometimes the, there are portions of the Bible that were not written for us. They, every part, let me clarify this, every bit of the Bible has some benefit to us, but much of the Bible was not written to us. Much of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, was written to the temple. It was written to the, 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 the uh, Jewish people. And where it wasn't written to us. We don't have to do a lot of the things that were commanded in the Old Testament, not just because Jesus Christ has come, but because it never, ever applied to us. And so we have to be careful of that. We also have to be careful of cults and other groups that will take verses out of context. And they will take those verses out of context and they will, they will take those and they will teach them as if they have direct application today and they built an entire theology around them. Be very careful. Understand not only who is speaking, but who they are speaking to. And here Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Discipleship was a huge principle of Jesus' ministry. Where sometimes he taught in front of multitudes, most of the time his teaching was for a very select few. Discipleship is very important. If we are truly going to become the Christians that we want to be today, not only should we be disciples, but we need to be involved in the act of discipling others. Small groups, one, two, three. Small groups of people, teaching them, building them up, showing them how they can go out and also teach, because that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is multiplying his efforts here. Jesus, as a singular man at this time on the earth, has a very, very limited reach. But if he can take what he has and invest it into the disciples, invest it into these 12 men, if he can do that, then his reach is multiplied by 12. Now he can start to go into all the world. That's our great commission. Our great commission seems daunting when he says, go ye into all the world and, and and, and preach the gospel, that uh, seems impossible for us to do until we understand the concept of disciple building. Once we understand the, the, the concept of disciple building, we have the ability to understand, I can go multiple places. Because it's not just me, it's me teaching people, and not only am I going out now, but they're also going out. He saw the multitudes. We don't know how long he was on the mountain. We, we don't know if it was a day, we don't know if it was a week, we don't know if it was a month. All we know is that he went up into the mountain on, on chapter, the beginning of chapter number 5, and we don't see him come down out of the mountain to the beginning of chapter number 8. How long that was is anybody's guess. It doesn't really matter. What I want you to understand is crowds are important, but a small band 
of disciples. A small band of disciples that are, that are focused on the mission of, of Jesus Christ is much more powerful. Let's look, continue looking here. Verse number two says, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is one of the first verses. This is the first verse that he spoke, but this is one of the ones that, that gets misapplied when we start to think that this is talking about the entire world. Because when we're talking about the entire world, we say, blessed are the poor. You notice a lot of times they leave off that last little bit. Not just poor. What is it? Poor what? In the spirit. It's not poor. It's not talking about poverty. It's not talking about a lack of money. It's not talking about physical things. It's talking about the spirit. And he's saying, blessed are the poor in the spirit. Why? Because they've acknowledged their poverty. Each and every one of us, when we come before Jesus Christ, we are sorely lacking in spirit. We are sorely lacking. And since we're sorely lacking in the spirit, we have a spiritual poverty. These people, though, they, they know it. They know that they have a poverty of spirit. There are those out there in the world today even that, that won't admit they have a poverty of spirit. That their spirit without Jesus Christ is weak, if anything. Doesn't mean that they're poverty stricken. Doesn't mean that they're that they, they don't have money in their pocket, doesn't mean they don't have food. It has nothing to do with that with this verse. But yet when we take this and we start to apply it to the world, normally when I see this verse being used, it's used in the situation where the people are dealing with homeless people. Well, homeless people can be poor in the spirit and are poor in the spirit, just like the rest of us are. But this isn't the application of this. This has nothing to do with monetary means. The opposite of being poor, uh, poor in the spirit is being full of yourself. You ever met somebody that was full of themselves, a religious person that's full of themselves? That's the opposite. That's somebody that, that, although they are poor in the spirit, they have no concept that they're poor in the spirit. They believe that they're rich in spirit. They're, they're puffed up. They believe that they're better. In Jesus' day, that would be the religious. In today's day, it's the religious. There it was the Sadducees and the Sarasees. Today it's the, the legalistics and the liberals. And, and, and we see that they, they feel that they have a, something better about them than there is with the rest of the world. Their ministries are often more about following them than it is about following Jesus Christ. Two things happen when a person finally admits that they have a spiritual poverty. When somebody finally humbles himself, their primary attention is turned away from the things of the world, and their primary attention begins to be turned and focused upon God. You see, that's why it's important we, add that we understand this is poor in the spirit. Because if we're, if we're just poor, oftentimes, if it's, if it's a financial hardship or a financial uh, poverty, then we often turn our attention to the things of the world. But a, a spiritual poverty focuses away from the world and focuses upon Jesus Christ. Because Why? Because that's where our riches come from. That's where our riches come from. He turns his attention away from the things of this world, and he turns his attention to God and to his kingdom. He acknowledges the fact that he is, has spiritual poverty. It's not embarrassing. It, it's just the reality of what it is. It's, the only way that it can be controlled is for us to go to Jesus Christ and for his riches. Verse number four, another one that's very, very often misapplied if, when we don't understand the audience. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now this is often used at funerals. But this isn't what it's talking about. It, in, a, in a small sense it is, but it's not completely talking about that kind of mourning. What does it mean to mourn? It means to have a broken heart. Here he's talking to his disciples. So unless one of his disciples has recently lost a loved one, he's, he's not talking specifically about that type of mourning. What is he talking about? He's talking about how our hearts should be broken. We talk about how Jesus Christ looks on the masses and weeps. We talk about how that when our heart is broken for Jesus Christ, we begin to see the world the way he sees it. We begin wailing over the death of loved ones, not just because we're going to miss them, but because if they didn't have Jesus Christ, they're, they're going to spend their eternity in hell. So this isn't for everybody. This is this blessed are they that mourn. Why? They shall be comforted. You see, there's a blessing. That they're, going to get, they're going to be comforted here. They're going to receive comfort. Our comfort comes from who? The Holy Spirit, also known as 
the Comforter. Yeah, that was kind of a, a lob. That was an easy one. The Holy Spirit. He's Jesus Christ told him a Comforter is coming. You're, there's going to be a Comforter, and so he, he he that's our Comforter. Our Comforter comes from Him. We will have comfort. We will be comforted by Him. There's a, a present comfort, a, a settled peace, a relief, a solace, a, a consolation. Where where even though we're we're heartbroken, we're heart stricken that there's still a peace there that passeth understanding. Now, in some ways, this can apply to those that mourn that are outside the family of God. But those that are outside the family of God don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have that Holy Spirit, so they they don't have that ability to have that peace at that time. Any emotions that they have or any sense of peace or joy that they have is, is manufactured inside of them. And unfortunately, it's usually... Lacking and very, very short-lived. I, I can't tell you the number of times. I, honestly, I can't tell you the number of times that, that I've, I've been with somebody when they've died. I can't tell you the number of times where I've walked in a room where somebody's just passed. I, I can't even begin to, to count how many times this is. But, but I can tell you that there's a subtle difference, a very, well, not even subtle, very distinct difference between a, a, a person who died with hope and a person that died without hope. Because even though the people in the room don't know, may not have that hope, there was a peace with the person that passed. Not just at their time of death, but throughout the entire process. Throughout their life. And you'd walk into some rooms and, and, and there was just wailing and people throwing themselves on the ground. And, and Why? They have no hope. There's nothing. And deep down inside, they know that it's worse than that. Even if they won't admit it. And then you walk into other rooms and there's just a sense of peace. Not happiness. Because happiness is based upon our circumstances. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're not. That's fine. You can, be a, you can be a happy Christian, you can be an unhappy Christian from time to time. When my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth, I'm not a happy Christian, but I still have peace, I still have joy. And I have a bottle of water, so it's all good. Happiness is an emotion that, that's just dictated based on our, what's going on around us. Surround yourself with people that want to build you up and edify you, which is what the church is supposed to be. You're going to find that you're happy a lot more than you're not. But whether you're happy or not, that, that sense of peace, that sense of joy that comes from God, that peace, the Bible says, passeth all understanding. You know what that means? That doesn't make sense. You know, a, a man loses his wife, and yet he's able to stand up and move forward the next day. That doesn't make any sense. Literally, based upon what the Bible says, a part of him just died. A part of him ceases to exist in this physical realm anymore. Yet he gets up and he showers and he moves forward. That doesn't make any sense. But it makes perfect sense when you understand that he is a peace that passeth all understanding. A peace that makes no sense. Unless we are focused upon God. Because that's where that peace comes from. Verse number five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? By the way, meekness does not mean weakness. In our culture today, we've, we've equated meekness and weakness. Meekness is not weak. Matter of fact, meekness has to come from a point of strength. You can't be meek if you're not first strong. Do you understand that? Meekness is a choice. Meekness is where we put ourselves. We have a strong but tender, humble life. A meek spirit is a teachable spirit. A meek spirit is, is, is not being weak. It's not bowing. Or it's not spineless. It's, not, it's a man or a woman who is strong, and yet they are humble and tender. It's a person who is controlled, not a person that's undisciplined. I've had people, they, they wear it like a badge of honor. Whatever I think is what comes out of my mouth. Like, oh, yeah, my five-year-old granddaughter's the same way. That's, that's not a badge of honor. That's, that's a sign of childishness. We have to be controlled. Our minds have to be controlled. Our, our hearts have to be controlled. Our tongue has to be controlled. A meek person is, a, is a, a person who's humble, not a person who's prideful. A meek person is gentle. They're not easily provoked. I struggle with this in my life. Too often I've been too easily provoked. And I've learned that I stop for a moment, say a quick prayer, and it keeps me from being not gentle. Nice way of putting it. 
A meek person is a person who forgives and is not vengeful. As a meek person, we need to understand, again, meekness is not weakness. We need to learn how to forgive people that have wronged us. Not from a point of weakness, but from a point of strength. We make the choice. We decide to forgive because God has given us that strength. God has given us strength. And what happens? They inherit the earth. They inherit the earth. What does that mean? This isn't talking about a future thing. A lot of people try to equate this to the, to the, uh, the millennial reign or something. This is, this is talking about today. Have you ever met somebody that lives like this? Somebody that's not quick to anger? Somebody that's in control of themselves, in control of their emotions? Somebody that, that, that is just a, a solid rock? They're not, they're not you know, going out looking for vengeance. They're, they're a forgiving person. You know what they've got? They've got the world today. You know, there's a, a whole thing about you know, living your best life now. You want your best life now? Lead a meek life. Lead a meek life. Much less drama. I despise drama. Much less drama because they have the earth today. They inherit the earth now. They, they presently enjoy and experience the, the goodness of the earth today. Not that they agree with the world or the worldliness. It doesn't say they inherit the world. They inherit the earth. The meek have found themselves. They're, they're comfortable with themselves. They, they understand who they are. Therefore, they are meek, but they are strong and confident. Verse number six. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Another verse that they, they cut off. They'll cut it off and they'll say, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst, and then they just stop. But it's not a, a physical hunger or thirst, is it? They're not hungering or thirsting after, after water. They're not hungering and thirsting after food. What are they hungering and thirsting for? Righteousness. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is, is literally doing your best, doing what's right. It's being righteous and doing righteous. In order to be righteous, we have to understand what righteous is. We have to understand what right is and what wrong is. This is where the scripture is so helpful. The scripture tells us what is right and what is wrong. The Ten Commandments tells us what is right and what is wrong. Other commandments throughout the Bible and through the life of Jesus, we see what is right and what is wrong. Displayed, mentored for us over and over. But the key isn't just to know it, it's to hunger and thirst for it. We live in the United States. We don't truly understand what it is to hunger for a meal. Not for long periods of time. Now, I know generations before mine, some of you may understand it better. But since my generation has come into the United States, there's not been a lot of hunger we may miss a meal every now and then, we, and we may not be able to eat what we want, or we may not be able to eat as much as we think we want, but we don't understand hunger like many of the other countries do. In other countries, they'll go days without food. We, we, we'll do feeding centers through manna. We'll do them in other countries, and, and, and children will walk for two hours to get their one meal of the day. And if it wasn't for the feeding centers, they may not eat that day because there's just no food. And so that's a different kind of hunger. And then we, they get rice, and they get meat, and sometimes some vegetables. We do our best to provide it, you know, a nice, healthy, balanced spectrum of foods. Um, but whatever you put in front of them, they're just grateful and excited about and polite about. But if you've ever been hungry, if you've ever missed that meal... You know, it, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for some of us sometimes when it comes to fasting. You know, we, we're going to fast for a day. And it's like, well, this is the end of the world. It's really not that bad. Matter of fact, I'll give you a little tip about fasting. The first day is the hardest day. After that, it gets, actually gets easier. But the, the first day, because our minds are trained that we have to eat in the morning, we have to eat at lunch, we have to eat at night. And, and once we start to break that cycle, we, we start to see some some differences in our spirituality, but that's a whole, whole different lesson on, on, uh, on fasting. But here, it's not talking about food. It's talking about having that same desire for spiritual things, for righteousness, for right things. We desire rightness. Our world is constantly feeding us 
unrighteousness. Everywhere you go, they have parades for unrighteousness, and they have meetings for unrighteousness, and they bring it in and display it in front of our children at school, the unrighteousness. And all these different types of unrighteousness is brought out and put in front of them, and this is what they're put at their table. This is what they're told to eat. This is what they're consumed. And so when they consume all that unrighteousness, the next thing you know, they're not hungry for righteousness anymore. Remember when our kids were little, the, the kids, even our grandkids now, the grandkids will come and Lily will come and she'll say, I, I want a snack. I told her, you can't have a snack right now because if you have a snack right now, you won't eat your dinner. And so sometimes we'll, we'll trick her, say, okay, you can have a snack, uh, but I'll, you know, here, here's, some, here's an apple. So that's probably better than what she's having at dinner time anyways. So here's something healthy, but no, she wants chips. But you can't have chips now because if you fill up on chips, what happens when dinner comes around? When the meat and the vegetables and all comes around, what do you, they're not hungry for anymore. In the world, we get the same way. We're not hungry for righteousness because we fill up on all the filth of the world. We allow the world to feed us all day long. And then we wonder why it's so hard to read our Bibles. We wonder why it's so hard to recognize truth from untruth. Because we're fat and bloated on the, the, the feedings of this world. Righteousness is, in the Bible means being righteous and doing righteousness. It means not just, not just knowing what it is, not just knowing what the right things are, but actually doing what the right things are. Nothing about the Christian life is sitting. It's always about absorbing and sharing. We need to understand what the right things are, and then we need to do the right things. Whether the world likes the righteousness or not, doesn't matter. We're never called to conform to this world. Now, don't, don't fall into the error of this. Some people go too, completely too far the other way, and they become, they become judgmental. They become critical. This isn't telling you to, to judge other people's righteousness. This is an individual thing. This is between you and God. You are to be righteous. You are to do righteous. And don't judge somebody else's righteousness by yours because you don't know how long they've been saved. You don't know how long they've been studying. You don't know what what pits they've fallen into and just been pulled up out of recently. Worry about your righteousness and doing right. Too often we fall into those traps. and and, And I know you can probably mention churches that are out there today that do that, that they have their righteousness. Much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though it's based upon nothing other than their opinions. And you can't have your own opinion. You can't present true righteousness because when you do, it conflicts with what they have. And then they have to destroy you. They have to push you down. We, I remember one time we had a, a missionary here, and her husband came to me and said, you know, it's Florida, it's hot. Is it okay if she doesn't wear pantyhose? Like, What? <laughs> I'm not in the business of telling your wife how she should dress. That's, that's a conversation between her and God, between, between you and her. You're the man of your house, not me. He says, well, let me explain why. He says, um, we lost support. Churches that were supporting us because they found out she wasn't wearing pantyhose in Africa when she was doing her mission work in Africa, and so they refused to support her because she's not wearing pantyhose. Because you can't be righteous, ladies, if you're not wearing pantyhose. Don't you know that? Have you read the book of Hezekiah? He said the problem is, he says, one, he says where we're at, he says, he says it's very, very hot, and I've never worn pantyhose, but apparently they're not comfortable when it's hot. Um, he says, but, but worse, he says, in the village that we're in or the town that we're in, he says the only people that wear pantyhose are the prostitutes. He says, so if my wife wears pantyhose and she goes to the store, the men all think she's a working lady. He says, it's not quite the testimony we want to project. But that's where we get our own righteousness, and we, we take our own righteousness and we make it something bigger than what it is. And, and usually, it, a lot of times, it deals with clothing. And I, I talk very, very little about clothing. Have you guys noticed that? Here's what I tell people when they ask me about clothing. What's the best you got in your closet? Other than like a wedding dress or a tuxedo. 
course, we could have Tuxedo Sunday. How cool would that be? Everybody wear tuxedos? Yeah? No, the guys are like, it's not going to fit. You can, wear your, you can wear your navy blues, or what do they call them? It's the blues? Yeah, you just wear that. I'm sure those fit, right? Yeah. Um, your leg, maybe. Because it's not about the clothing, and it's just Florida. And, and I don't know if you notice or not, but it's, it's warm in Florida. A little cooler yesterday, but it's warm here. So a lot of times I don't wear a tie. I don't wear a suit, but I wear something nice. It's clean. I've been dealing with some foot pain lately, so some of you may or may not have noticed I'm wearing tennis shoes. But I got the black ones, so they don't stand out as much as the ones that had the silver on them, so they, they kind of hide better. Every day I hadn't said anything, you guys probably wouldn't have noticed. It's not about, I'm not more righteous because I wear hard sole shoes as opposed to tennis shoes. I'm not more righteous when I put on a tie. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate that. It, but we need to be respectful. We need to be humble in our attire. We need to be modest in our, in our attire. And I tell people, they're like, all I've got is t-shirts. All right, well, get the one that has the fewest holes in it, put it on, and come to church. Right? You don't have to, if you want to, if the Holy Spirit's telling you, I got to put on a suit and come to church, then go buy a suit, put it on, come to church. Half the time, Harmon dresses better than me. He's got a jacket on today, and he's actually taking notes. He's not asleep. He looks like he's asleep, doesn't he? He might actually be asleep. Harmon, you with us? He's with us. Uh, and, uh, but that's okay. That's how God wants him to dress. God wants you to wear a suit, wear a suit. Be humble. Be modest. We got way off track there. Righteousness. Righteousness Righteousness doesn't come from me. Righteousness doesn't come from a pulpit. Righteousness doesn't come from a man. Righteousness comes from God. His righteousness. We are to hunger for His righteousness. Not my righteousness. My righteousness is what? Like filthy rags. His righteousness. The question is, how much are you seeking after righteousness? How much of a hunger do you have? If there's a problem with your hunger, why do you have a problem with your hunger? Are you filling up on junk food? Have you lost your desire for the, the sincere milk of the Word of God? Where's the disconnect? Start with that. Get on your knees and ask God, God, give me that desire for righteousness. Being filled with righteousness is similar to being filled with the Spirit. We won't get into that. You can look in Ephesians 1.18 or Galatians 5. Uh, 22, if you want to know more about being filled in the Spirit, but, but, but it's, it's, that's the opposite of it. We're, we're emptiness, and we have fullness. Let's, let's move on. We're going to be here all day. Verse number 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What is merciful? It means to have a forgiving spirit. We don't hold on to grudges. We have a compassionate heart. We're, we're forgiving those who have wronged us. But it's more than even that. It's also having empathy. You see, empathy takes mercy to the to or, or takes forgiveness to the next level. It's not just it's not just forgiving somebody. It's, it's trying to understand. We're having empathy. We're trying to get into their head. We're trying to get into their heart to understand why are they doing what they're doing. Why are they feeling what they're feeling? Empathy takes a direct effort on our part to be able to do that. It's the opposite of being hard, unforgiving, and unfeeling. They have the love of God that dwells in them if they're merciful. 1 John 3, 17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother, and have need, shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Kind of a rhetorical question, because the answer is it doesn't. The love of God does not dwell in him. They know it's more blessed to give than to receive. Every believer can be merciful. Although some may not have experienced any mercy other than what Jesus Christ has for them, they can still show mercy based upon that. Verse number eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to have a pure heart? It means to have a clean heart, an unsoiled heart, an unmixed heart, unpolluted. It means to have a heart that's been cleansed. This is why it's under, it, it, we have to understand the audience, because many of the multitudes did not have a pure heart. We can only have a pure heart through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So we have to understand that, that if we have a pure heart, there's blessings that come with that. 
we're going to see God. We get to see God. What a wonderful day that's going to be. We have that clean, purged heart standing before our Father, our Creator. Verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Another one that's taken out of, out of context. In a, in a small way, this does mean peacemakers in general, people that, that will stand between two men that are fighting and, and, and rationalize and bring peace to them through whatever means, whatever godly means they can. But more importantly, when it's talking about peacemakers, it's talking about men who will stand up and women that will stand up and help another person achieve peace with God. They're the peacemakers. How do we have peace with God? How do you have peace with God? We accept that Jesus Christ is our Savior. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we, we are no longer at enmity with God. We are now one with God. We are, we are the children of God. We become his family. We become his children. We're not his enemies anymore. And we have a world out there that is at enmity with God. We have a world that is fighting against God, whether they recognize it or not. They're just doing their own thing and thinking that, that nothing is happening. But, but in, in all actuality, they're fighting against God. They're fighting against his righteousness. They're fighting against his, his principles. They're fighting against his love. They're fighting against the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for them. They fight, fight, fight. And we need to be the peacemakers. We need to step in and broker that peace between the two of them. Romans 5 1 says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's how you, be, you came to peace with God, because of Jesus Christ. And we need to, as, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, we need to be brokering that peace with other people. This is what our, our World Changer Seminar was about. We changed the world by helping people one by one have peace with God helping them to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. We strive at every opportunity to make peace within others. Our world is not a peaceful place. But we can have peace in this world. We can at least have peace with God. At the very, very least. We strive at every opportunity to do that. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the servants of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience. The peacemaker is the person who has made peace with God. The first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that we have peace with God. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never allowed Him to bring that peace unto you, see how this doesn't apply to you? You can't bring peace if you don't have peace. This wasn't for the multitudes. This is for the disciples. This is the disciples when they go back out into the multitudes. Jesus is telling them, you need to be peacemakers. You need to tell them how they can have the peace that you've already found. The gospel of Christ is spread by peaceful means, not by force, not by coercion. We have, we have a history of you know, the, the, the grander, bigger church in general using force. Most notably, the the Catholic religion and their faux Christianity. And they take it and they, and they would force countries into being what they consider to be Christians. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. Throughout the Caribbean, they, they would have uh, slaves and they were forced to worship the, the, uh, the saints of the Catholic Church. As they're forced to worship, they, they refused at first, but then, you know, after a few of them got beaten, after a few of them got killed, they decided, okay, we'll, we'll do something. So what they started doing is they started, they just changed the names of all their gods to the names of the saints. And they changed the name of their religion from Lakumi to Santeria because they worshiped the saints. And Santeria is still worshiped, and they, they still hold on to the Catholic holidays. It's a black magic that came from Africa. There used to be a place three doors down from my house out here in the manor. Where once a year, they would have a big party for one of the Catholic saints. I can't remember which one now. Francis? 
Anybody here former Catholic? A couple of you former Catholic. Anybody know the the saint that has all the animals walking around him all the time? Francis. Is it Saint Francis? Yeah, Saint Francis. So they would have a big party on Saint Francis, and they would they would wouldn't have animals walking around. They would they would sacrifice animals, and that was just right over here on Rambler Avenue. It's gone now. I'm not sure where they went, but that was right over there. Loud. And a big old party. I went down there one time. The first time it happened, I went down there. I'm like, let's go see what's going on. So I go down, and I'm, I get stopped at the end of the driveway. And we're just walking, and, and uh, I said, what's going on? Are you guys having a cookout or something? And uh, he's like, oh, it's a, it's a religious service. I'm like, oh, I, I, I enjoy religious services. Can you, uh, can you tell me what the religion is? And he, he kind of stumbled. He says, it's Lakumi. I'm like, Lakumi? I had to go look it up, to be honest with you, because I'm like, I know that, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I was telling V as we're walking down there, I'm like, this really sounds like Santeria chants as we're getting closer. I'm like, you really think we have Santeria this close to us? And so I went back and I looked up Lakumi, and Lakumi is Santeria. It's just Santeria has such a negative connotation to it that they, they call themselves the Lakumi now. That was the, the name when they were in Africa before they were brought over as slaves. So it's just, we, we have this, um, this group and the cults will use force to force their beliefs on people, and the gospel is not supposed to be spread by force. We're not used car salesmen. We're not tricking people into anything. We're not coercing people into anything. We're not guilting people into anything. Now, I know the Bible says sometimes saving them by, from the fire by fear, and, and so there is a time and a place where they need to understand that, that if they don't change, if they don't accept Christ their Savior, they're going to go to hell, but that shouldn't be the first quiver out of our in our bow, the first one should be love. They should understand what we have to say. They should desire to hear what we say because of the example we've lived, but more importantly, because of the love that we've shown in Jesus Christ. Verse number 10. We're going to run late. Nobody had any place to be, did they? We're almost done, actually. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So we see that there's going to be some persecution. Just as Jesus Christ is going to be persecuted and nailed to the cross, just as the prophets were persecuted, just as the early Christians, the early Christian church was persecuted, there's going to be persecution. We're going to be reviled. That means verbally abused, harassed, insulted, scolded, mocked. We're going to be persecuted, hurt, ostracized, attacked, tortured, martyred, treated hostily have all manner of evil spoken against us. They're going to lie about us. They're going to slander us. They're going to curse us. They're going to lie about us. Somebody posted a video online not too long ago of what they think happens inside this little church. And, and it, was a, it was basically a charismatic service. I don't know what was going on. It wasn't this church. And I don't remember, was it, was it you? Somebody said, why don't you show up one day and see for yourself? I think it was Wes. This saw it before I even saw it. He put it. Why don't you show up one day and see for yourself? Instead of imagining what's taking place, show up. They haven't shown up yet because they don't. They don't want. They don't want the truth. They want the imagination. They want us to be in here cutting the heads off of chickens. They want us in here, you know, handling snakes and things like that. And and uh, um, they they don't want to know the fact that we're preaching the love of Jesus Christ. They want something bizarre. They want something foreign. They want something out, out of the world. But, but here's the reality of it. If we were doing that, they'd be a lot more accepting of us. But there will be persecution. You'll be lied about. People lie about you behind your back. There will be times where things are going to happen. I've told you. And every time I mention it from the pulpit on the recording, my, my attorneys, they, they, they cringe because now it's just one more line in, in, the, in the, the lawsuit that I was terminated from Orlando Health because I'm a Christian. They found out that I'd posted a post on my personal Facebook page that didn't have anything to do with them, that um, they understood that I wasn't pro-abortion. They were shocked that their chaplain wasn't pro-abortion. And they called me in the office, and, and they said, 
we understand you have a very strong opinion about abortion. Like, well, it's not really my opinion. It's just the fact of the matter. Abortion ends a life. That's murder. That doesn't fit our corporate culture. And they terminated me. Never had a write-up, never had a counseling, never had anything. And they terminated me over that. That's persecution. I even told them, I said, you know, you're violating my constitutional rights. I didn't get into the entire Bible thing. I just told them, I said, you know you're violating my constitutional rights. And he just looked at me and smiled. Basically, what are you going to do about it? So, found a Christian attorney. There's a federal lawsuit going through the works right now. It's not, to, it's not to get money. It's not even to get damages back. It's to, it's to make a point that they can't do that to Christians. Christians, we have, to, we have to stand. We have to stand in these gaps. But we will be persecuted. We're forewarned about this. We're going to suffer persecution. Why? Because we're not of this world. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, fa- you stopped being a citizen here, and now you're a citizen of heaven. You're an ambassador here. You are a representative of heaven here. But this isn't your home anymore. Our home is somewhere else. Our home is with Jesus Christ. And it's, oh, how I long for the day. Either he just takes me home individually, or that trumpet sounds, and we all get whisked away. I long for that day. We're forewarned here. It's not if... We suffer persecution. We will suffer persecution. We're not of this world. John 15, 19 says, If you were of this world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That's strong language. We suffer persecution because we strip away the cloak of sin. This is is where we become the most offensive to the world. See, the world wants to do what they want to do. They want a God that they create in their own minds that allows them to do what they want to do. But when we stand up for the truth and we stand up for the righteousness, we remove that cloak of sin from them, that that cloak of, not the cloak of sin, but but the the, the cloak that hides their sin. And now they have to admit, we don't tell the world, that's why I tell people all the time, you can live however you want. I'm not telling you how to live. That's not my job. The Word of God tells us how to live. I just proclaim what the Word of God says. But that's offensive to them because now they can't pretend like it's not sin. They can't pretend. We've removed that cloak from them. And John 15, 18 says, The world hate you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. And then verse number 22 of John 15, it says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. See, when Jesus Christ came in the world, he removed that cloak of sin. The world has to purposely deceive themselves now. They have to purposely ignore the word of God now. Because that cloak is removed. There is no excuse for it. Except they choose to live in sin. We suffer persecution because the world does not know God or Christ. We suffer persecution because the world is deceived and its concept and belief of God. They want a God who fulfills their desires. They want a God that they can understand in their three-pound brain. They want a God that, that does what they say they do. They want a genie in a bottle is what they want. They want a God that they can run to when th- times are tough, but they don't want a God that they serve when times aren't tough. They want a God that, th- that they can go to and, and, and say, God, give me a raise, and God, give me this, and God, give me this. They have a complete consumer mentality of the church and a complete consumer mentality of, of what God is, that God is somehow a servant to us. Not worthy of our worship, not worthy of our, of our tithes and offerings, not worthy of our sacrifice, but a genie in a bottle or in a box that we can, we can rub on and say, God, do this for me. And we treat the church the same way. I've had people that will call up and they'll say, I need you to pay my electric bill. Why would I pay your electric bill? Because you're a Christian. Yes, I am a Christian. I'm going to pay my electric bill for my family. I don't have extra money to pay your electric bill. I don't even know who you are. And they get angry with me because I won't pay their bills for them. Sometimes I've told them, why don't you pay my bill? just completely over their head. We had a lady that was at the church, one lady, very 
broad use of that word. We had a female that was here, and she was constantly abusing V and constantly abusing V. And I told V, I said, you got to put your foot down. I said, if you don't do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. I'm going to do it. And, and you're going to be much more polite about this. This can't go on. V would come home so stressed and so worn out because this woman was like, you do this for me, you do this for me. V, finally, one day V says, I, I'm not doing anything else for you. Oh, yes, you will. And V said, no, I won't. You have to. You're the pastor's wife. I'll tell you something about my wife. She is about as calm and meek. You know, don't want to push her in a corner. Because she'll come out. She'll come out. I remember the first time she yelled at me. Funniest thing I ever saw. We were just dating at the time. And I don't even remember what it was about. But you may not know this. Sometimes I can be a bit much. I know. You're all like, what? So I don't know what I'd done or what I'd said or what, what happened, but she was done that day. And she's on her toes, and she's in my face, and she's pointing her finger. And it was just, it's like, you're not seeing like a little banny rooster. They get all this anger, or like a chihuahua. They get all this anger, but there's just nothing to fill it. You know? and, and, and I started laughing. Here's a tip, guys. That's not how you, you handle an argument with your wife, or at that point, just my girlfriend. I don't know why she married me. I don't know why she did it. But that was the attitude. Her attitude was, you're the pastor's wife. Since you're the pastor's wife, you have to do everything I tell you to do. What? We will be persecuted. They will lie about us. They will say things about us that are not true. They'll twist things. I went to a, a yard sale one time of a, a person that had been attending church here for a while. I had a ladder for sale. And I said, well, how much is the ladder? And they're like, well, how much you want to give us? I'm like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. Because I've, I've, been, I've been bit too many times. How much do you want for the ladder? They said, $40. Okay. Here's $40. I take the ladder. A couple days later, somebody comes up to me and they tell me, I was talking to such and such. They said you stole their ladder. Excuse me? Yeah, they said that they were selling it for $100, but you'd only give them 40 and they felt like since you were the pastor that they had to give it to you at 40 It was not a $100 ladder to start with. It was a $40 ladder. It was a fair price. Part of me wanted to take the ladder back. I still got that letter. But it's just the way they do it. We, we have, I, I, can, I could stay up here all day long sharing examples with you. Just be careful. The world will lie. The world will say untruths. More importantly, keep that in mind when somebody tells you something about another Christian. When somebody comes to you and say, you know what I heard about Danny? Or the best one is, the best one is, is you know, when somebody will say, um, I can't tell you who, but somebody said. Well, I don't care what somebody said. What do you say? And, and, you know, because people, they just flat out blatantly lie. And it's not just me. It's all Christians. Persecutions erupt from the most devilish imaginations of men. What should we do when we're persecuted? We don't retaliate. We don't react with pride or, or spiritual superiority. The Bible tells us to count of joy and all gladness. I was told once, if you're not being persecuted, what are you doing wrong? What's going wrong that you're not running? I had another pastor tell me, if you're not running head on with the devil every once in a while, you're heading the wrong direction. You should be button heads. The persecuted have a promise, great rewards, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, in this sense, it kind of has a dual meaning. It's not just talking about the true kingdom of heaven that's coming, but we can have a taste of the kingdom of heaven here. 
As we, as we live out Christ here, we get a taste of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't the kingdom of heaven. Don't fall for that false teaching. The kingdom of heaven is being established. We are establishing it with Jesus' help. He, well, let me rephrase that because I don't want you to seem like we're doing anything this grandiose. God is allowing us to have a hand in the workmanship. He doesn't need us. It's going to happen without us. But he allows us to have a piece of that where we're able to set things into the kingdom of heaven. He lets us do that. But we get to have a taste of that spiritual heaven today. We start as we're, as we're persecuted for Christ's sake, we have a new understanding and a new closeness with Christ. Not nearly what it will be, but much closer than what it is. We begin to have that taste of that coming heaven. We have a greater witness when we're persecuted. We have a greater understanding and clarity of the scripture because we start to see Jesus. When Jesus said we'll be persecuted, we're like, yeah, yeah. That's why we count it all gladness. We're not glad because of the persecution itself. We're glad because of what it represents. They're persecuting us because we're standing with Jesus Christ. That should make us happy. The world is recognizing that you stand with Christ. I know a lot of Christians or people that claim to be Christians that I would never have thought they were standing with Christ. But the world looked and said, you're standing with Christ. We have to do something about that. Whew, praise God. Look at me. <laughs> we call these the Beatitudes. These are the blessings. This is the first part of the, of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. These are specific blessings that are given to the disciples of Jesus Christ. You desire these blessings, be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't desire these blessings, be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Learn at his feet. We have the teachings right in front of us. And we don't have to wonder about what was said or, 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 or how it was heard. We have it written down for us so that we can study at his feet today. Be a disciple. If you, want, if you can join the continue class, that's great. If you can't, you can be a disciple of Christ at home. Study a scripture. But remember, it's not just knowing it. It's not just learning it. It's not just taking in and understanding what righteousness is and what being a disciple is. We have to go and we have to use it. We have to put it into practice. And begin, not just telling the world, but discipling others that we've told.